Boom, what is happening, beautiful people? Welcome to another podcast. Really quick introduction um, today. We've got Marianne, who is the medical director at Uniting at the Safe Injecting Room or Supervised Injecting Room in Sydney. Um, if you're watching this, I'm coming to you on a grainy camera. I'm in my hotel room in Adelaide. Um, and I just thought it'd be fitting to post this podcast up uh, today because I'm actually away um, on a policy drug and alcohol policy meeting where we talk to the health minister and do a few things like that. Um, so this was a really interesting chat about drug policy, safety injecting rooms, the theory behind it, harm minimization, all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, hope you guys really enjoy it and really like it. Production is a little bit different. Higgledy piggledy. I've been moving. Um, I've been traveling a little bit for work. So we're just doing the best that we can to kind of get stuff out. But the conversation is great. Um, and I loved chatting to Marianne. I'm actually going to get it back on and have a whole um, deeper discussion because it was such an awesome chat. Um, just quickly, guys, I wanted to let everybody know as well, if you're listening to this and you're searching for help, um, we actually have a new online course that we've put out leading into the holiday season. Um, it's almost done. It's not quite complete. Um, so if there's a special offer on it at the moment. The links will be down in the description. Really encourage you guys to check that out through connection-based living. Um, it could help if you're looking, yeah, for something to help you change things up, get control of substance use and things like that. Uh, leading into the silly season, but maybe, you know, you've heard and you can't do our coaching, full in-depth coaching programs for some reason or, or whatever it might be. So go and check that out. Um, but we won't hold you up for too much longer. Really excited about this chat. We'd love to hear your feedback about it. Um, so let us know and uh, let's jump into the show, guys. Peace. Okay, boom. Welcome everybody to another episode. Now, I'm excited about this one today because Poor Marianne, I've stopped and started with you like six times um, and we finally made it online. How are you going? <laughs> I'm very well. It's very nice to be here, Jack. Real pleasure. Awesome. awesome. Now, I'm a, I'm a Melbourneian, so what we're going to talk about today or some of the things that we're going to talk about. about yeah, that's me too, actually. <laughs> um, the, the, sun, the sun should be out and it's not today. Um, but... Yeah, so, so it's a bit of a hot-button topic for us, actually, with some things that are going on in Melbourne around, um, you know, uh, different safe injecting rooms potentially opening or the push for them to open and things like that. Um, so I'm excited to chat about that. But before we go there, for everybody listening, um, as I was explaining before we started recording, everybody knows that I'm notorious for buggering up the uh, introduction. So can you just give us the... Um, three-minute snapshot of you, who you are, what you do, um, you know, some of your background, things that you care about, things like that. All right. Um, so, pleasure to be here. My name is Marianne Jolty. I'm the medical director at Sydney Supervised Injecting Facility, which yep. was um, when we opened 22 years ago, was the first service of its kind in the English-speaking world. Um, I've been here for over 15 years. Wow. Um, I'm very pleased to report that we consider ourselves kind of part of the furniture here. So I don't think we suffer quite so much from the kind of sensitivities and, and political kind of vagaries that happen so much in Melbourne at the moment around the topic of supervised injection facilities. Which um, I'm interested so I'm to... That we, we feel a bit more... Yeah, I'm interested to hear yeah, why. So we feel what, yeah. not quite so... so um, at the whim of the politicians here, like we've been here such a length of time now and got that bipartisan support and it's it's just really hard 
um, watching from afar what is happening in your state and in Melbourne when we know that you guys have got the very robust heroin market and as a result you guys have got more overdose deaths um, and that number is continuing to go up and that, yeah. you know, is just... Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. So, okay, so and before we get into all that, which I can't wait, um, and you know, share as much or as little as you want to, but uh, excuse my language. Why the fuck are you interested in this space? You know, most people run the other direction. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, look, a, a number of people have asked me that. I'm not sure I've ever come up with, with the best answer. So um, I, all, I, I didn't even really know that I wanted to do medicine, to be honest with you, yep. and somebody suggested it. I knew I was going to take a year off. I thought, oh, why not? Um, uh, kind of ended up going to uni and each year I'd get through and people would go, oh, you know, good, we're through to the next year and I'd be thinking, oh, yeah, do I still want to keep going with this or do I want to do something else? But all the way through to when I finished and everybody went, oh, my God, hooray, we're finished. And I was like, oh, shit, now what do I do? And so I never really had a strong sense of exactly what I wanted to do, even after I'd finished studying medicine, until I... Um, worked at a service in King's Cross before this place had opened and a friend had sent me uh, a job ad. She'd ripped it out of the paper and scribbled on the back and just said, this sounds like you, exclamation mark. <laughs> and when I opened it, it said, flexible and eclectic approach needed to work with vulnerable populations in King's Cross. And I didn't even live in Sydney at the moment. And I kind of had a bit of a laugh, you know, what is it about me that she thinks, you know, flexible and eclectic? Anyway, <laughs> I ended up applying for the position and, and, and getting the job, which was at the Kirkton Road Centre. Yeah. Um, and both working at the Kirkton Road Centre and then studying public health, that was the first time in all of the time that I'd been working in, in medicine that I felt like I found my tribe. Wow. And I suppose for me it's something about um, the values, yeah. about social justice, about community, about um, dignity, human rights, a fair go. That so it's not it's not necessarily drug specific. It's about the injustice, I suppose, is is what makes it feel for me. So I'm a public health doctor, and yeah. and so I don't know. There's something about the deep seated injustice that happens in the drug and alcohol space that I suppose calls to me for want of a better description, just because there's so much work that needs to be done and really amazing good people. Yeah. And doing it. once you work, once you work in the space for a while, it's, it's um, one of those frustrating things. Well, this is what frustrates me is it feels like um, there could be just a few uh decisions made that would make such a huge impact in improving you know the health health outcomes for people um and the community but it's just as you said at the start it's just really politicized and um prevented from getting to that place in terms of some of the drug policy wow, and stuff like that <laughs> yeah but it's all it's so emotional so people have this incredible gut reaction to it um you know, and all of us, like, you know, even the best of us in this in the field, I think, you know, would still sometimes suffer, see a headline or hear a story, and there's both your instinctive response and then your more kind of considered response. And I think our instinctive response is very much driven from, you know, a combination of our personal experience, but also what we get in terms of the media and the, and the dominant narrative out there. 
which after you've been working in the space for a while, you think, hang on, hang on, hang on. That's actually, that's all us about. We've got it backwards. You know, most people use illicit drugs without suffering harm. Um, most of the time, there isn't any need for a health-led response. But for a small proportion of people, mm. things can go devastatingly wrong. And yet, even when we've got the capacity to help and evidence-informed strategies and treatments and support systems that we know will work, we can't do it. And I suppose that's what I find incredibly um, yep. frustrating is, is, as you say, there are things that we, we know that we could do that would make a difference, mm. and yet we're prevented from doing it because of politics, because of the law, because of stigma. And, again, so that goes to this inherent um, unfairness and injustice that happens in this space. Yeah. So you just said something. Um, I don't have my notepad with me, so I didn't get to write it down. But you, I, I, tell me if I quoted it wrong. But you just said that there's the, the larger proportion of people that use drugs don't require a medical response or intervention or any kind of intervention. Why is that such a like? I don't know. Would you say that in the climate, if you say that to people outside of the alcohol and drug space, that that's a controversial? <laughs> Thing to say um but yeah. why is that so controversial why why have, do people struggle to, to accept that i suppose because the dominant narrative is so vastly different you know and i still have conversations where i have to say to people to journalists to people that come through on the public tours that we run here to even sometimes you know colleagues um you know, something will come up about, about drugs or dependence or addiction and they'll say, oh, you know, that first shot. And you go, well, hang on. I mean, there is no such thing as somebody being addicted after a puff or a drink or a smoke or an injection. And I'm still going, oh, oh no, no, no. I, I, yeah, you, you're hooked on your first shot and you go, you know, you're really not. Trust me. <laughs> that is. And, and so this dominant narrative, which is so powerful, that says, you're hooked from the first shot, mm. you instantly become unrecognisable compared to your former self, you will instantly become violent and depraved, regardless of who you might have been otherwise, you will instantly become some, you know, criminal, violent, inherently evil person. Um, and But that's there. And, you know, and you're at risk of dying. Yeah. And the link between crime and drugs and violence and harm is so, so bound up. And, in fact, you know, some of the stuff that I've learned is actually, you know, we sometimes make it worse. Mm. Um, so the organisation that I work for, Uniting, has um, done some or funded some work that was done by Common Cause and it looked at the way we talk about drugs and how we inadvertently perpetuate the stigma. And so one of the things they, they spoke about was, interrupting that link between drugs and crime and drugs and violence. And so one of the things they said is never talk about the war on drugs. And you think, oh, God, how often have I used the line, we need to, you know, stop the war on drugs because it's a war on people, we need to lay down our arms and declare peace. But in fact, what the evidence would show we're doing is reinforcing mm. that subconscious link that says drugs and crime, drugs and violence, drugs and evil. And in fact, we should just be saying, um, Drug use is common. Uh, yeah. Remind people that alcohol uh, is, you know, you're considered un-Australian almost if you don't drink and the hypocrisy <laughs> is just extraordinary. Um, and talk about the need for, you know, a social and health-led approach and then leave it there. So 
it's so inherent in what we do that I think even those of us that would like to think that we're on the right side of history can inadvertently sometimes be making it be making it worse. It's so interesting. Do you know what? Like, um, uh, so because we did a media story um, together, <laughs> how long? That was a few months ago now because we've missed each other a couple of times. Yeah, yeah, earlier in the year, I think it was. I can't remember exactly when. Yeah, um, but it's it's interesting. So um, I've had quite a journey with this stuff, and I find it hard to explain to people, but. I was, you know, and in a lot of ways, what you just said is true with what happened with, yeah, my story being kind of shared in the media. When I first got, um, I don't even think about it like this now, but look, it's how I was rolling at the time in brackets like sober. Um, I was working for a rehab and it was like when the whole ice epidemic thing hit and, you know, I used to use ice and whatever and, and I just wanted to help people, right? And I thought, yeah, I'm just going to share my story and whatever and it's going to get out there and help people and invertibly it did connect with people and things like that but when I look back on it having met um, you know I had this whole evolution of you know my identity and just how I think about drugs and alcohol in society from being lucky enough to just be on some government boards and different things with people like yourself and other researchers and and hearing some of this stuff. And it really changed the way that I thought about things. And I realized that unintentionally, I actually like through kind of sharing my story perpetuated like stigma because, you know, I would like try and help people because I would tell like the worst parts of my drug use, which, you know, for some people is pretty full on. And it just kind of like, I did connect with a small percentage of people, but I was, yeah, as you just said, I was pushing that narrative of like someone that uses ice is like this kind of, you know, absolute, yeah, like kind of drag on society, the suicidal, they just have psychosis, all this sort of stuff. And it's actually when you, when the thing that happened for me, which I didn't realize is because I was so deep in that world and then all the people that I was doing like recovery stuff with were in that situation as well, I kind of fell into that trap that I thought that that's everybody's experience when it's just not, you know? And, and as you said at the start, what the evidence shows is that there's more people um, that, that um, you know, use drugs and don't have problems with drugs or, or don't end up at that pointy end. So, yeah, it's a very interesting conversation. But we never hear from them. No, that's right. Yeah, we never hear from them because of the shame and stigma. So if you're doing well, why on earth would you put your hand up and acknowledge one small aspect of who you are, which is that you, you know, take whatever substance it, it happens to be that you take, people don't. And so instead, the only stories that run and the only narratives that run in the media, are exactly as you say, are the very stereotypical ones. And we know, certainly, in, in, you know, in terms of Crystal Matthews, that the more we perpetuate this myth, and it's, I mean, it's not always a myth, as you say, like, you know, crystal methamphetamine use for people can really be terribly destructive. So nobody's trying to pretend that that's not the truth. It's just not all of the truth for all people all of the time. But but when we make it out as if it is, then the people that maybe are using and just starting to notice that it's becoming a bit harder or it's interfering with life or work or relationships find it even harder to put up their hand because the fear is you put up your hand and say that you've been using ice and you're just keen to sort of maybe have a bit of a stop take or check and you touch base with somebody you're too frightened to because the sense is as soon as I admit that, 
somebody's going to look at me through a different lens and a different sort of pair of glasses and see this monster. And so, you know, we know that people on average are using for years at, mm. in problematic ways before they actually put up their hand and ask for help. And, you know, that's just so wrong. A hundred percent. And it, and and even crazy. like yeah. the thing that people need to understand about this, and I'm interested to ask you about the specific stuff around, um, you know, the injecting safe injecting rooms and stuff like that. But and sorry, I don't even know if we call them that anymore, safe injecting rooms or, you know, injecting medical. What what is that? What we call them now? Well, so, yeah. So so we normally say supervised injecting. Supervised. Story. That's um, right. People yeah. also know them as yeah. Um, but so. In Australia, we've only got um, places where people can inject. Um, uh, kind of a generic term that's used in other places is drug consumption room because in other places you might be able to smoke your drugs or take them, you know, different routes of administration. So drug consumption rooms or, you know, as a sort of broader term, um, also known as overdose prevention sites or overdose prevention centres. And certainly across North America, when we look at the rate of overdose death, which is just huge out of this world yep. um you know the, the the focus is very much on 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 preventing overdose deaths so tell us yeah. the tell us the um the theory behind or the, the the public health kind of initiative or theory behind having a supervised injecting room you know because i think people again that haven't studied it or outside the space just think um and i don't think this but they just think what you're going to give a place for these junkies to go and use their drugs? Like, how dare you? You know, like, what's the what's the um, the actual evidence based thinking and rationale behind having yeah. the rooms in place? It's so simple. Like, it's <laughs> so simple. So, in Australia, we have been providing clean injecting equipment to people who inject drugs since the 1980s, um, and we do this because we know that it prevents epidemics of bloodborne viruses and specifically HIV. So we've got one of the lowest rates of HIV amongst people who inject drugs um, of anywhere in the world. We, we, literally Australia is absolutely at the forefront of preventing an epidemic of HIV because we provide clean injecting equipment and obviously heroin and meth don't cause HIV. Sharing a syringe between two people when one person is infected and the other person isn't, that's, that's, that's the transmission risk. So if yeah. you can basically flood the market with clean syringes, you, you prevent the, the epidemic. Um, but, but think about that. Like, what does that mean? It means that we're giving somebody who we know is injecting heroin or methamphetamine or another substance, um, we're giving them the clean injecting equipment, we're talking to them about bloodborne virus risk, about overdose risk, about other options or treatment services or housing or whatever. Um, but at the end of that interaction, there's a transaction where me as a healthcare worker puts together some equipment in a brown paper bag and hands to, you know, you or someone um, and says, oh, you know, best luck. <laughs> and by necessity, the law demands that I turn you away, that I force you to go somewhere else to use the equipment that I have just given you free of charge, that the government funds, and in fact, every government, state and territory, is telling us all that we need to be doing more of this. We need to be providing more people with more equipment more often, mm. again, from a bloodborne virus point of view. And yet the assumption is that's enough because I've, I've done enough to prevent you getting a bloodborne virus but then you go off and you use the drugs at extraordinary risk sometimes, mm. out of necessity, away from care, away from supervision, away from, 
from somebody who might be there to do something. Now, when you know that being alone is an independent risk factor for dying, and when you know that if somebody is present when somebody suffers an opiate overdose, a heroin overdose, um, I can guarantee you, don't get many guarantees in medicine, Jack, <laughs> I can guarantee you if somebody is present, recognises what's going on, I can guarantee you that person won't die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have, you know, hundreds of deaths just from heroin, more than 1,500 from, from drug overdose more broadly. Um, every year, every single one of those opiate overdoses is a preventable death. Yes. And yet the law demands that I give you a clean syringe and then I turn you away because the possession and self-administration of of any substance is still considered a crime and therefore my job is done as a healthcare worker from a public health point of view when I provide you with the clean injecting equipment. So when I started working in King's Cross in 1998 um, at a place called the Kirkton Road Centre, I'd only been there I think a couple of months and we had an overdose in the, the toilet, in the client toilet, which was in the downstairs level. And I remember being one of the people that had to try and, um, you know, put the, the 20 cent coin in the in the lock and open the door. And this person had sort of collapsed. We could see his legs from under the door anyway. And we pulled them all out and had to give him Narcan. Um, he was fine. Um, my heart nearly wasn't. I think I really, I had not been so frightened. It's pretty traumatic, isn't it? Yeah. Forever, because I thought, uh, you know, he's, he was navy blue. Um, anyway, cut a long story short. Afterwards, I put a sign on the door, um, uh, put a sign up with blue tech and says, closed until further notice due to public injecting. And I was really indignant because I just thought, oh my God, you know, that kid nearly died. You know what was what was he thinking? And I was traumatized. And, and one of the nurses came up to me and, and just gently said, "Where did you think you'd go?" And I just didn't understand what she was talking about. And of course, what she was saying, and very gently and very kindly from her point of view, because I clearly knew nothing, um, she was saying to me, "Well, we've just provided him with clean syringes, and we asked him what his last job used, and he said heroin. We knew that he was going to go and use heroin. Where did you think he'd do that?" And in that moment, like the whole world exploded <laughs> because the honest, answer, the honest answer was, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Mm. Hadn't thought about that because I hadn't thought that was my job. Mm. And then I thought this rush of shame that, oh, my God, why did I think my duty of care stopped where the law stopped? Because the law says I can give the syringes, but then I can do no more. And, of course, the reality is if that kid hadn't abused in that, toilet you know that day that I remember with a bit of sort of stress and you know kind of rush of adrenaline could have been the date that was etched into his tombstone as the day that he died Mm. um and so this is the question where do we think they're going to go (laughs) so you said what's the the justification behind supervised injecting spaces or overdose prevention sites or drug consumption rooms is that we know what's going on when did sticking our head in the sand and being an ostrich ever help? We know that people are using drugs. We give out in New South Wales alone 14 million syringes every year. Where do we think people are going to go? Yeah. All I am doing is extending a duty of care when I know that I can keep that person alive. And when you've met enough mums and dads and brothers and sisters who've lost, who have lost someone to overdose, it is 
absolutely beholden upon us as the health system to say, you know what, my duty of care extends to thinking about where that person is going to go when I provide them with a clean, clean yep. syringe. And in my view, we have absolutely catastrophically unequivocally failed in our duty of care every time we turn someone away. Couldn't agree more. It's so interesting. So we had, um, I always mess his last name up. This was a while ago now um, when the review of the North Richmond here in Melbourne Centre came out um, of the of the room just before they made it not a trial and made it a permanent fixture. Um, and there was, a, there was a lot of hoopla going on <laughs> in the media around that. And uh, A lot of hoopla is one way to describe it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Greg, Greg Durham, I think. Anyway, he used to be a police officer and now, you know, works in the alcohol and drug space after his... Yeah. yeah, that's him. Yeah, so... And he was telling yeah. me, because the thing in Melbourne, um, to the point that you just made, and I don't know if there's similar ones when the King's Cross center first got established but um you know in north richmond so i used to yeah i used to inject drugs and we used to go to north richmond and it was fucking right off right you know what i mean like i always laugh at people when they're like oh you're creating this place like where people come and use drugs i'm like if you had gone to north richmond 15 years ago it was fucking hectic like there was just it was everywhere uh there was people just slumped over in the street like on the middle in the middle of the day anyway and the big thing in north richmond exactly. is, is people always go on about how could you put it next to the school <laughs> right there's a primary school look i'll admit maybe it's a little dumb they shouldn't have put it there but anyway they say how can you put it near the school but greg was telling me that before the center was there they actually used to teach the kids how to like walk to school looking at the ground and walk in like diagonal patterns and things like that so that they didn't stick themselves because there were so many bloody needles on the ground. Um, and then people just quickly forget things like that and just say, oh, well, but you've, you've created this, this honeypot of like where people come right near the school and all this stuff. And it's just not true. It's like people were there already. <laughs> it's absolutely not true. It's absolutely not true. So we've got this map of overdoses in 1999 and we had on average an ambulance being called to a heroin overdose every 12 hours around the clock, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year in 1999 within 200 metres of where I'm physically now situated. Yeah. And that's because you you put a supervised injection facility into an area where there is problematic drug use and public drug use and overdose. That's how they work. And in North Richmond, it was exactly the same situation. You had an extraordinary situation in public, in those parks, in the in the car parks, um, huge numbers of public um, overdose um, and ambulance and deaths. And you similarly got a situation in the CBD where, you know, media that just came out within the last few weeks talking about the number of debts which is continuing to go up and the heroin market which is stronger in melbourne than anywhere else in the rest of australia right and, and, you know and think i think you know like i i mean i imagine that most of the people listening to this are probably converts so maybe we're just operating in our own little bubble but <laughs> if you've got you know friends and family or colleagues who say but isn't that promoting drug use isn't that encouraging drug use Remember, we're providing the clean injecting equipment. So to somehow think that taking that off the street and out of an inherently more unsafe environment, how is that part of the problem? Surely that is part of the solution. Yeah. How on earth is it not infinitely better 
to say rather than going using in a park, rather than going into a car park, rather than going somewhere where somebody else might see you and be frightened and not know what to do, and you may have no one to intervene in the event of an overdose, why on earth wouldn't you then put that into a facility? It's a win-win for the local community. And that's what we know up here, you know, that the people, especially amongst the long-term residents of King's Cross, the clear majority of the residents and the businesses want us to stay where we are. I think we had the benefit of independent MP at a state level here, and so I don't think we had, I mean, we had a lot of politics, but probably not quite the politics that's playing out. We also didn't have social media quite when we opened compared yep. to you guys um, when you opened five years ago. Um, but I just, you know, like I know I've met the residents um, in and around Kings Cross. They were the ones in North Richmond. They were the ones that were, you know, fighting a campaign at ground level, at community level, because they were saying, I don't want to, you know, be racing out to my garden and trying to ring triple O because I've got some slumped person, you know, out the back of my alleyway or something. So. Mm-hmm. You know, there is absolutely no evidence that these services do anything other than um, keep people safe and well, um, provide a mechanism for people to get um, into the healthcare system, provide referrals into sometimes treatment services, into housing services, try and deal with hepatitis C, um, opiate dependence, wounds, infections, dental issues. And if you think about it, like I said, you know, do you really think that a bunch of healthcare workers, and you know, we're run by Uniting, which is the service and advocacy arm of the United Church, do you really think if these services increase drug use that we'd all be so supportive of it? I mean, you've got every medical faculty, every relevant nursing group, every research institution that's got anything to do with drugs or bloodborne viruses or addiction in the entire country coming out in support of these facilities, showing that they work. Do you really think we'd be doing that if they did actually make things worse? Yeah, 100%. You know, of course we it's, wouldn't. It's, um, it, it, is, it is crazy and it, and it frustrates me and it's, it's like it, it is hard to – I think one of the benefits, to be honest, is that less people are watching kind of that the mainstream media um, – and less people are because you know overwhelming amount i believe is that people get their news about drugs and alcohol from the media (laughs) um so you know there's there's less people watching it but it's still it's still bad and it still runs the narrative so in like in in the cross do you also think that it may have been a little bit easier to get that established because like king's cross was just so notorious for like you know, just it's like, I don't know, colourful sort of um, history and background? Yeah, I mean, I think there was definitely, amongst the the people that lived here and the businesses here, I think there was an acknowledgement that, you know, the red light district meant sort of sex, drugs and rock and roll. Um, And the reality of, of, of dealing with you know, those overdose having, you know, I mean, you speak to people that lived here back then and almost all of them had had to call an ambulance at some point because they saw, you know, they were first to come across a slumped body, which again is just, you know, it's extraordinary when you think about what that what that means. Um, but, you know, one of the things I've learned um, since I first started working in, in King's Cross and in harm reduction is that, especially when it comes to overdose prevention sites or supervised injection facilities, is the rubber hits the road when you start talking about the physical location. So Ireland, for example, have had enabling legislation in place for 
um, seven or eight years and still haven't been able to open a service because as soon as they come to talking about a physical building or a space, kind of people get up in arms. Um, similar similar issue all round all round the globe really, um, except I suppose when you're faced with the enormity of the catastrophe, which is overdose death across North America. And so Canada, for example, their first supervised injected facility opened up a couple of years after we opened. So we had a lot to do with them. Um, they were, you know, the next one in the English speaking world. So we sort of considered ourselves sister services and shared a lot of kind of, you know, assistance and support. And we sent all our policies and procedures and protocols over to them. Um, and they've got, you know, more than 100 supervised injecting facilities or, or drug consumption sites now across Canada and, of course, now North America. You know, wow, I didn't, even, I didn't even know that. Um, yeah. And I think it's the reality is that when you've got that many people dying, I mean, if you're a middle-aged white man in America, your life expectancy is actually going backwards now, and that's because of fentanyl. That's wow. because you've got a situation where the majority of overdose deaths Fentanyl is found, and it's a contaminated drug supply, basically. Mm -hmm. And um, it presents some really, really interesting ethical kind of challenges. Because I think if you asked, I was at a, a conference last week, the outside conference, and if you asked anybody there, look at the situation across North America where you've got more than 110,000 overdose deaths in the United States, um, and the vast majority of those are related to fentanyl and, and, and people either unwittingly taking fentanyl and not knowing or becoming dependent on fentanyl and, and then overdosing. Um, it would, would you prefer that situation where you know that literally overdose deaths have been climbing at just a rate that you can't comprehend or would you prefer to go back to a situation when heroin was just heroin? Everybody would say it was better before because the deaths were lower. Not that they were zero, but the deaths were lower. But of course, what does that look like in terms of, you know, public policy space? So I think we can all talk very easily and reasonably about the decriminalisation of, of drug use in terms of use and possession being decriminalised. I mean, the church, I mean, I, I don't consider myself religious. I'm not a member of the United Church, but I work for Uniting. We've got, as far as I'm aware, they're the first faith-based organisation to be actively campaigning for drug law reform. And again, because this stuff is actually not controversial. I mean, you might you'd be forgiven for thinking otherwise sometimes when you listen to, you know, particular political leaders. But actually, the, the general public of Australia is behind this. If you ask them in a sensible way, what do you think should happen when somebody is, you know, is found with a certain amount of this drug, this drug, this drug, this drug, this drug, in every single case for every single drug, the majority of Australians respond with a non-criminal response. Um, so... It's widely accepted yeah. that we should move away from this kind of criminal dominant narrative, but we're still only thinking about it in terms of, you know, um, decriminalisation of sort of use and possession. You know, what North America is having to face is, well, that's not enough. What else do we do in terms of either, you know, safer supply or massively expanding treatment or how do we get around the stigma? And, you know, we opened the conversation by, you know, a few easy things could really shift the dial and there probably is some you know easy things in terms of funding and, and, and policy changes but actually when you start getting into the nitty-gritty use you realize it actually is more of a wicked problem than mm. than we might like to think like i always used to think oh you, you know you just put a line through one or two bits of current legislation that says that you know use and possession possession is crime and you know oh we're done with that but it is a lot 
harder than that? You know, are we talking about all drugs? Are we talking about all of the time? Are we talking about all ages? For all, you know, on the first occasion, the tenth occasion, the hundredth occasion, um, what should you do with the drugs when they're found? What should you do with a person? And all of these are questions that, as a sector, we really need to to grapple with and start having. You know, I think it's time that we started having some hard conversations with ourselves. And I, the other thing I really think is, you know, we know that people with lived and living experience have so much more to bring to the table. But I think the reality is, unfortunately, there still feels like there's a bit of a divide. And, you know, I know that as a clinician myself, my profession has been responsible for building some of the architecture of power and control that has made people's lives absolutely bloody miserable. Um, I know that and I acknowledge that. But equally, there's clinicians that are really trying to be good allies. And, you know, I don't have lived experience of injecting drug use. And so there's just some stuff that I that I will never be able to to bring to the conversation. I would hope that the experiences that I do have are are helpful and, you know, just the same way whether I'm, you know, in terms of, you know, marriage equality or something. Like I think, you know, we want to be good allies and I think we need to we need to work out how we work together a bit better. I think unfortunately there's still a bit of a um, a bit of a rub sometimes that, that comes between all groups actually coming together and sharing equally. And I understand that because you've got traditionally a group of people that have been marginalised, excluded, criminalised. So why wouldn't they feel defensive yeah. talking talking to the likes of me? Um, but I think it's you know then it's our job to um, to really try and create those spaces where people genuinely feel safe and we can actually have the conversations, which means we each understand each other better if we're actually going to, you know, because at the end of the day, like all we want to do is keep people safe and well. Like Mm. really, it's all we want to do. So interesting. You've opened up a gazillion questions in my head. So just quickly, what do you think about legalisation of drugs? So, yeah, so it's, it's an extremely important question and a very difficult one to answer. Yeah. So from Uniting's point of view, so my organisation would say their policy position is that we need to remove the criminal sanctions for use and possession of all drugs for all people in all situations. Fantastic. A harder question is, yes, but where do the drugs come from? Wow. And... So my personal view, I think, has shifted. And, and But there's still a, a balance that, and I, I, I don't know quite, you know, because you push down with one and to reduce the risks and the risk, risks are up in another, in another place. What we do know, whether we're talking about heroin or alcohol or cigarettes, is that if you make something really easy to access, more people will use it. And the more people use substances, the more likely they are to run into harm. You'll have a, more of a population. Even if most people are doing it fine, the more people, even if it's a, you know, a, 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 a small minority, the more people there are, the, the more people there are in that small minority. So the, the easier you make it to access a substance, whether it's legal or illegal, the more people will use it and then the more harms you will come. So not that I agree with criminalising, but in terms of regulation, I don't think anybody sensible is saying, oh, yes, we should have heroin packaged up nicely on the on the shelves of cops. IGA, yeah. Um, <laughs> but equally, yeah. 
But equally, if you make it so hard that you criminalise and stigmatise and demonise, then the harms come from that. So we're all looking this classic U-shaped curve to, you know, you can't make it too hard but you can't make it too easy to try and get the, the point where there's, you know, the least possible harm. And context is really important. So I think that's why, you know, this this notion of, of you know, are there supply level levers that the health system can engage with to make things safer for people has come out of North America because the harms are so enormous. So what does and that look like, this, the so supply I, measures that would be implemented? So I think, so I think it, it's different for different substances. Right. And I think you can go to principles. So the principles have to be um, how do we best keep people safe and well? How do, how do we create some kind of regulation that means it isn't, doesn't become easier for people to access and certainly not young people to access, but equally where you've got people that are, you know, again, like the system, you know, the situation that we've got in North America where what people are buying is far more likely to kill them than if they got a script from someone. So the simple answer is I don't know what it looks like and I don't think anybody really knows. It looks different for different substances. And in the same way that we're trying to, um, you know, reduce the amount of advertising for alcohol, which I think is a good thing because what's the drug causing the most harm on cigarettes and alcohol because of the yeah. high levels of use. So we're trying to kind of increase regulation for certain drugs, but then we're trying to remove this, the criminality for others. So I think it's different for different drugs and for something like heroin where you've got a really narrow therapeutic window. I mean, the difference between a, um, a ther you know, therapeutic dose and a fatal dose is very slim, mm. you know, I think we need to be really careful because um, these are drugs that actually relatively easily kill you because you just forget to breathe. You stop breathing and then within a matter of minutes, you know, you're dead. Yeah. Um, whereas for different substances, I think we can look in different ways. I mean, look around the world, look at, at what's happening in, in the marijuana space, for example. We, I think most most states in, in, in America now um, have some kind of legalised, regulated supply of marijuana. And, you know, the United States wasn't a, a country that, you know, 20 years ago we would have thought of to kind of be leading the way in terms of, you know, drug regulation. So I think there's lessons to be learned there, both in terms of how to do it well as, as well as how to do it not so well. Yeah. I think, again, you, you let market forces, um, you know, in and where profit drives the market, again, from a public health point of view, and, again, it all goes back to your, what's your value system and what lens do you come to this issue with. For me, it's about keeping people safe and well. Um, so I certainly think that marijuana is not something in any way that should be, you know, um, criminalised. Can you do it safely and regulate it safely? I think so. I don't think that that looks like um, big business and big marijuana coming in when profits drive it because necessarily what they want to do is increase use. Mm. Yeah. That's um, a long answer to say... No, I get it. I don't really know, but I think I think we've actually got to start asking ourselves some hard hard questions. Yeah, for me, I just think like there, there's definitely hard questions, particularly if you just take heroin, for example, if you were to legalise that, how the fuck do you safely dispense that to people? How does it look? Is it prescription? Like, like you know, that it's difficult, but I just think like 
the more and more like I used to be against decriminalization. I understand it, like it's very easy in your head, but I think um yeah, just the legalization. The more I look at it, it's kind of it feels like to me that there's no real other way to go about it, just because of how the drug supply can be contaminated, and there's no sort of regulation on what's in the actual drugs you know um and how to get people using like a safe supply of of drugs you know and and just like everything that comes along with that and how that opens up criminal organizations to you know that it's got it's their biggest uh pro well i don't know exactly but i'm assuming drugs drugs is their biggest sort of income stream so if you take that away then it's it's helping in that area as well it just it kind of to me i know it's a big jump but it just seems like a no-brainer in a lot of ways but there's definitely you're right there's definitely lots of difficult um challenges yeah (laughs) um so what so so that's one of the hard conversations is is this overall like drug policy space in in terms of how do you set up the foundational legislation to provide the right environment um, to get the best health outcomes. What's some of the other hard questions, you know, you, you mentioned some of the struggles that we have within the sector of like the connection and, and things like that, um, between the, between different people. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Um, you mentioned lived experience. There's a big cohort of people (laughs) that listen to this, that have a lived experience, you know, um, is there something in particular that you think that we should be doing there? Yeah. Uh, Hard, a I big guess, question, I know. Again, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what it looks like, but I think, you know, it was interesting. A, a number of people were having discussions at this recent um, conference that I went to and, and myself and a couple of other medical colleagues were talking about how we've actually got to unlearn a bunch of stuff. So, yeah. you know, and we, you know, went through medical school and we were taught about, you know, about boundaries and about, personal disclosures and about how, you know, when people ask you personal questions about yourself, that always the appropriate response is to find a way gently and respectfully to kind of help guide the conversation back to them because this isn't a conversation about me, this is not a friendship, this is a therapeutic safe space, so it's not about me and my disclosures, it's about how do I make things safe for you, therapeutic for you, focused Mm. on you getting the help that you need, all of which is correct and right and fine and absolutely I'm not suggesting that you know we throw boundaries out the door but I think equally now people with lived experience are not just our patients or our clients they're our colleagues yeah and so there has been this real power dynamic and that's why I think I said something at the beginning you know I understand that there have been clinicians which have which have been kind of part of the problem rather than part of the solution And, you know, traditionally it's clinicians and prescribers in particular that have got access to, you know, do you or not get your takeaway doses for methadone, do you get on your script or whatever. So there's a real problem with the power dynamic. Um, But equally I think what we have to unlearn is is that somehow we don't share something of ourselves. So, you know, we know whether we're talking about, you know, some of the lessons that we've learned in terms of engaging with um, Indigenous Australia and, you know, it's right. late, a but I'm still wearing my Yes t-shirt. <laughs> Got the Yes t-shirt. Um, because, 
you know, I think this country has fundamentally got so much to learn from the grace of, um, you know, the original inhabitants of this land and so much to be proud of in terms of the longest continual sort of civilization of anywhere in the world. And yet there's a, a really tricky dynamic that goes between kind of, you know, the oppressed and the oppressor. And it's similar in terms of the clinical space and people with lived experience. And I suppose from my point of view, what I would like to try and do is get us a bit better at leaning in. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, sorry, we just disappeared into the uh, black hole of the internet universe, as happens sometimes when we you know, operate this way. Happens to the best of us. Beauty yeah. of beauty of technology. Um, but you were you were saying because it was a really interesting point. You were talking about um, having to unlearn some of the clinical practices or the philosophies that you've kind of been taught as medical professionals, and I would say as allied health professionals as well. Um, just to kind of like it because it is right in theory, but then you know we sort of know, don't we, that. Like it's the human to human contact that really helps people to make the change. That's it. That's it. That's it. You've nailed it. And, uh, you know, there's something about, I mean, it's not just sort of healthcare workers and allied health, you know, even journalists, this, you know, because we're interested in this, there's, there's, there's not this divide now between our professional selves and our personal lives that used to be kind of sacrosanct you know you've got journalists doing stories about their own lives and so increasingly there's this understanding that that all of who we are is relevant and the professional and our personal and the personal and our professional and I think you've nailed it it's about sharing and it's about connecting and I think unless we as the healthcare workers share and connect with people with lived experience in a way that is safe for both sides and respectful of both sides, I suspect we're not going to really feel entirely like we're truly on the same team. I'm not trying to say that I will have all of the same views or completely inhabit the same space. Like I think it's appropriate that there might be things that we disagree on. The best coalitions, I think, yeah. do push boundaries and different people in different spaces. But, you know, I guess my thing is think of the Venn diagram and the overlap in the middle. Mm. My argument is that there is so much more that unites us than divides us. We've got enough people that we need to kind of um, shift in this world from the right of politics to the right of media and some of the atrocious um sentiment that's expressed in social media about the worth of people who use drugs. So in, in that context, we know we've got a job to do, which is out there. Surely we need to find ways to get along and to kind of, yeah, just work together. And I, and I, and I, I think you're right. I think, um, you know, when we don't really know someone or we're a bit scared and intimidated, the natural human response is to, other you know if we're a bit frightened our response yeah. to fear is to kind of push away to make ourselves feel a bit, a bit safer and i think we're all guilty of that no matter who you are or what your background is and i think we all you know and i think traditionally the the, the healthcare workers more so because we've been part of the problem and if we're wanting to be part of the solution then i think we really need to lean in and 
listen to people with lived experience and hear from you how do we do that in a way that genuinely feels safe? How do we do that in a way that genuinely feels respectful? How do we do that in a way where your voices are augmented rather than kind of trampled upon? How do we do it in a way that we're not asking you to speak though in an area where you don't feel comfortable? It's, and I, I suppose we need to learn to be good allies. But part of that, which I think is uncomfortable sometimes for people in the healthcare space is, in my view, it really is about sharing and connecting and understanding. You know, once you've, you know, broken bread and gone out and, you know, shared something of who you are as a person, yeah. it, once you've done that, you know, it's much harder to then maintain this kind of stance of, oh, you know, you're my enemy, you know. So I think, yeah, I, I think somehow we need to find the, the space for that to happen yeah 100% um it's super interesting and I think um the big one for me that I've started to realize is like also like with the lived experience stuff which I think challenges a lot of people and just the space itself self is moving away from what we've been talking about of that like it's important to have that as well but just moving away from that typical like inverted commas like recovery story of someone that was really having a bad time with drugs and alcohol they get sober, they've been sober and I hate using this word, but clean for however long and it's like this redemption story, you know, like having the full spectrum of people's experience of different methods of recovery, maybe people still using drugs, um, people that have reduced their Absolutely, harms. people still using drugs. Like That's right. Like I think, you know, the redemption story is, is absolutely a valid story and there are other valid stories. Mm. To have a range of valid stories doesn't mean one is more valid or less valid or one is more correct or less correct. Like I think, you know, we've got an understanding that abstinence is not the enemy but neither is harm reduction the yeah. enemy. It's got to be about what somebody is interested in. And, you know, I've told a story, um, you know, once like... Sometimes the mantra in, in harm reduction is any positive change. Mm. And, you know, I, we, we had a well-known client, um, this was some years ago now, he's actually got, you know, weird things have shifted for him. But, but a while ago we had a client who was street-based homeless who had very poorly controlled epilepsy and was having multiple um, seizures and falling down and, you know, being admitted to hospital with, with fractures and grazes and terrible injuries as a result of kind of having a, a fit in a public space on the concrete, um, who was heroin dependent, who was methamphetamine dependent, um, who had a range of other kind of uh, needs that weren't being met. And we couldn't even, you know, find him a safe space to live. Until one of the, one of the you know, really clever people at work here sat down and had a conversation with him and was just trying to understand every time that we try and find the possibility of a of a of some kind of accommodation, the sense was that he backed away. And of course it transpired that he was really frightened of not being in a public space when he had a fit, albeit it was quite dangerous to be in a public place when you fell from, you know, the bus seat onto the concrete ground. But there was somebody there to call an ambulance. And it turned out that what we needed to understand was he was frightened of being alone because he thought he might die. Yeah. And so then when we worked with him over the space of about four months and it, it was not easy to try and work out who can you see and how can we get you in a position where, you know, we can actually 
get an appointment to see a specialist neurologist who's got your background and facilitate them getting all of your history. Um, in, an, in, a, in, a, in a world where appointments need to be kept on time for somebody who finds that hard, you know, to get a review of his epilepsy, to review, to do another scan, to get him started on some different medications. How does he then take those medications when everything he owns is frequently stolen? And so then we started, you know, holding on to his medications. Anyway, fast forward kind of four months. And um, after he'd, we'd helped him get the review and back on anti seizure medications. He then went three months without having a seizure and then he came to us and basically just very gently said, oh, I'm ready to get a house now. <laughs> now, he was still using drugs, but to me that is such a success story. Yeah. And it was basically because we didn't understand, you know, we were really trying, but we just hadn't quite asked the right questions in the right way to understand what the barrier was. And then when we worked it out, it was like, okay, you need to stop having seizures. We can we can do something about that. And then when he went through three months with no seizures, then he was actually ready to start engaging with us about the possibility of housing. And wow. he is housed. <laughs> wow. To this day, he is housed. So, yeah, it's such a great story and a great example. And that's what people have to learn or not learn, understand of like what, that harm reduction approach is, you know, I often tell a story all the time amongst my group of mates when we were using drugs, the way that we got in contact with the health system is because one of our friends had a, and I don't know if this is kosher and if you're still allowed to do this or if they were allowed to do this, but they did it, um, where we were smoking out of like, we were using other drugs, but smoking weed out of like a Gatorade bottle, plastic bongs. And that's how we got engaged with like the health system and support workers is because one of our mates came in one day and was like, can you believe I just saw my drug and alcohol worker. She bought me a bong and she took me to Macca's. <laughs> and like the idea was that obviously the glass bong was like a lot cleaner and healthier way to use it. But what actually happened from that was that he started telling us all about the drug and alcohol workers and interventions and stuff. And then it helped us to all reach out and get involved in services. And, you know, some of those people today are like living a completely different life and, you know, it just wouldn't have started. But we would have never spoken to a drug and alcohol worker if there wasn't anything like that going on at the time. You know what I mean? We just would have been like, oh, whatever. Yeah. So you got to meet people where they're at, don't you? Yeah. That's it. It's about reducing those barriers and we need to stop being, you know, thinking about being in our own comfortable buildings where only we want to work and sitting in our, you know, lab coats or whatever. It's about kind of us getting out and engaging in a way that is acceptable and um, non-threatening and client-focused and genuinely focused on hearing what somebody wants rather than traditionally what, you know, clinicians have done is let me tell you what you need to do it's like shut up listen yeah. just listen and then respond with so what I'm hearing you know you want or need is is this correct right what can I do to help facilitate that 100 yeah. percent. so it's about being creative as well that's right <laughs> that's right so to finish up um hypothetical question question without notice um I don't know if there's any things off the top of your head but if we were to live in a hypothetical world um, and everything was all good and Mr Chalmers or whoever the finance minister is in New South Wales um, gave you the keys to the coffers and you were able to kind of do one or two or three 
kind of big things to help, you know, the um, drug and alcohol space move forward and, and get better health outcomes for people. What would you do? What would you do from the position that you're in now, from the things that you've seen, all the things that we've been talking about, what would be first order of priority? <laughs> big question, I know. <laughs> Um, and interestingly, it's not just about money, actually. So the first thing I think is changing the narrative yeah. and that's not easy or simple to fix. And by necessity, it's going to take time because it's taken many, many decades to get us to this position. So it's going to take us years to get out of it. But I think really understanding stigma and exclusion and othering and creating some clever campaigns, I mean, Beyond Blue they did this around mental health. So I think we really need to be um, investing in creating space to talk about drugs and the people who use them and to have an open and honest conversations about the realities that using substances that change the way we think, feel and act is inherently human. Mm -hmm. It's not good, bad or otherwise. There's no moral link. It's just what humans do. Yeah. And so let's talk about that in a way where there is no right or wrong answer and there is no fear associated with it. We can just have an open and honest conversation. So I think investing in a way to create that possibility. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is housing yeah. and support for the first three years of life. So it's certainly not the case that, you know, people only use drugs because they're marginalised, stigmatised or... Um, homeless or mentally unwell that, that you know some people use drugs who come from that background obviously not all but for example amongst the people I see and as a public health person what I do know is that the, the more um, the more people are more likely to use drugs in a problematic harmful way if they've got histories of trauma and neglect and abuse and adversity and so the more we can do, especially in those really early years of life, to set people up to succeed, the better. And so, you know, the fact that we've still got, you know, we've got young kids living in hotels because there's nowhere for them to go. We have extraordinary numbers of people still in out-of-home care. You know, if you're on the housing wait list in New South Wales, it can be years before you potentially get a place. So I think we need to attend to, you know, Maslow's hierarchies of need. The first one is shelter. We need to... Yeah. In a rich society, it's not hard to expect us to be able to provide a place for people to live safely. Um, and then I do think, and again, you could say this is the healthcare worker in me, but I do think for people where there's really problematic use, we could better invest in treatments. We know that there are treatments out there that work and they're not well funded and there's not enough room at the end. And the fact that people are waiting more than 10 years to put their hand up and ask for help, and yet when they do, 50% um, of the time in New South Wales, the answer is, well, no, not yet. Sorry, I can't help you because we don't have enough space, so we need to increase our funding. And then obviously, but this is just two obvious words, we need drug law reform. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Love it. Love it. Well, hey, it's been uh, – I couldn't agree more with you, by the way. Um, mine would probably go in, in a similar order. Different of no, no, probably the same, Hi. roughly. Uh, I think stigma is the biggest one, really. It just kind of underpins everything, doesn't it? It just fuck, fucks everything up when you're trying to make changes across the board. <laughs> it allows us to ignore it because it's them. It's not me. It's not us. It's them. Yeah. And as soon as we've got the them and the us, we can continue to exclude and demonise and other and unfund and mistreat and 
Yeah. And again, that's why lived experience, and that includes, you know, families and friends, Yeah. you know, talking up to, to help us understand there is no us in there. It's all just us. Yeah. It's all just us. 100%, 100%. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. We'll have to get you back on because I had a couple of other questions I didn't even get to ask you. I got lost in the in the conversation where, you know, things about... Well, and we also went down an internet black hole. That's right. That's right. So so, so we'll have to go back for round two. But thanks so much for coming on. It's, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure. Um, and just quickly to kind of give it the, the plug, how can people access the um, um, services that you're the director of there if, if they're in the area so and, our, and they need our, some help. Yeah, our service operates at 66 Darlinghurst Road, so we're directly opposite the King's Cross train station, the yep. Foster Glass Windows. We're open um, every day, so public holidays, Christmas Day, Easter Day, we're open, 9.30am uh, till 9.30pm on normal days, 9.30am till 5.30pm on weekends and public holidays. Just walk in, that's all you have to do. Just Awesome, love it. Best answer. Um, all right. Thanks so much. Have a good day, people. Peace. Absolute pleasure. Real, really enjoyed it. Thanks, Jack. No worries. Bye, everybody. Okay. Just give me 